Well, this morning we are confronted with two New Testament scriptures that, for different reasons, I suspect have elements in them that seem a little odd to us as 21st century hearers. Both of the passages describe experiences that touch both sides of the divide between the physical world and the spiritual world. The beginning of the passage from Mark describes the activity of casting out demons, which would be a dramatic and crowd-gathering kind of event in any day and any time. We read the familiar story from Mark and accept it at face value, but I suspect that demon-casting out activity is far from any of our actual life experiences. We breathe a collective sigh of relief for the distance in time and place between our lives and first-century Palestine. The passage from James deals with the more familiar bridge between the physical and spiritual world, the exhortation to prayer within the Christian community. While we are all familiar with prayer, the James passage goes to some length to make the case that specific petitionary prayers have tangible and possibly dramatic effects, including healing the sick, forgiving the sinner, and alleviating specific kinds of suffering. To us as 21st century Westerners, we acknowledge that prayer is an important part of discipleship. And we would likely say that we believe that specific prayers may be answered in dramatic ways. But I suspect we feel a little ill at ease over the way the phrases play out in the letter from James. The rhetoric seems a little dramatic and over the top to our more modest sensibilities. Let's look at the Mark passage first. The scene opens with a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. John confronts Jesus with a question. The question seems a little odd, and you can hear a bit of what I would call attitude behind it. Uh, Jesus, this other guy we heard about was casting out demons in your name. We told him to stop, but he wouldn't. Should we, told him, should we tell him that you told him to knock it off? I mean, theologically speaking, we are the only ones with the proper credentials for casting out demons. I had to laugh to myself as I pictured the disciples saying this. It seemed a little like a game of tattletale. The mental picture I had was a case of whiny children in a school playground asking the teacher to tell the other group of children to stop playing the same game that they are playing because the other kids just aren't doing it right. Jesus' response is typically kind and firm. He says of the rogue exorcist, let him continue with what he is doing since those who aren't against us are for us. What is striking to me in this passage is not really Jesus' answer, but the nonchalant way that the activity itself is described and dealt with. Consider if the same thing would be happening in our church neighborhood. Think about that for a minute. I suspect that if we would get wind of a story like this, of someone making a ruckus down the street by casting out demons, the headline in the intel would not be that someone is casting out demons without the proper bureau licensing from the city and county of Lancaster. No, the headlines would simply be that someone down the street was claiming to cast out demons. My reaction to the story in the newspaper would likely be pretty skeptical, and I suspect that most of your reactions would be fairly skeptical as well. Unless I would see some fairly strong evidence to the contrary, I would assume that the guy causing the fuss was just some crackpot who was playing on people's fears about demons. The oddity in a passage like this is the way in which Jesus seems to shrug off the supernatural demon, demon removal therapy as just another activity you might encounter in the ebb and flow of life. 
Jesus gives the uncertified demon caster outer the benefit of the doubt. It's as though he were talking about any other activity that somebody might be doing in order to get the message across that the kingdom of God is at hand in a big way and that the times they really are are changing. Jesus turns the incident into a modest, teachable moment. He says to his disciples, Hey, we are in this together. The work is hard. If someone is doing our work for us, let him continue. Whoever isn't against us is for us. Even something so simple as giving a cup of water is valuable in the work of building up the kingdom. To us as contemporary listeners, though, we can handle the cup of water observation. The demon casting out activity might take a little bit more processing, to say the least. As I read through the New Testament, I often feel jostled around and sometimes stunned by the stories of the supernatural breaking into the narrative at what seemed to me to be very inopportune times. In my more charitable moments, I recognize that those elements of the stories are important in their context. I realize that the thin line between the spirit world and the physical world was understood as much more porous and open in Jesus' context than it is to us today. We are proud, rational, scientific, and skeptical children of the Enlightenment, and all of the demon stories make us a little fidgety in our seats. In my less charitable times, I found myself downright annoyed by the stories of healings, exorcisms, and dramatic answers to prayer. I see them as distractive window dressing around the good news of God's tangible, this world, kingdom. They seem like a cheap way to make the case that the gospel witness is true by showing physical evidence of supernatural activity to back up the claim. For me, the heart of the kingdom story is the life and teachings of Jesus as related and explained by the gospel writers and further interpreted by the rest of the New Testament letters and narratives. For me personally, I'm much more concerned with the here and now issues of economic justice in my neighborhood and in the world than proving that the prayer of a pious individual really changes things. I want to live by the Micah command to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. I want to know how best to live in community as disciples, and I cherish the scriptures that give dramatic and unique insights into the human condition. I have a vision of the believing community as a genuine counterculture, a place where all those who are interested in hearing and living the Jesus story can come and have a safe haven against the lies and deceptions of the empire. Somehow, stories of tangible examples of actual interactions between the spirit and physical world, healing and miracles, seem like distractions that don't help anyone in bringing about that vision. Yet, as I look at the full scope of scripture, I'm confronted with the rather uncomfortable realization that much of kingdom work hinges on that connection between this physical world and the world that is beyond our understanding. To remove that mysterious element of Christian life and practice from our faith, or to relegate it to obscurity in our discussions about faithful discipleship would seem, to me at least, not to be faithful to the whole of Scripture. A practice of faith divorced from this recognition that there is another reality beyond our own familiar physical world feels like a faith with a head but without a heart. Perhaps part of our problem, part of my problem, is the terminology we use to describe the spirit world. For instance, when I say the word heaven, what kinds of images pop into your mind? Are they positive images? My immediate 
mental images of heaven most certainly are not positive. Fairly or unfairly, the word heaven reminds me of death and funerals. It conjures up images of hopeful but somewhat pathetic discussions among people who, for whatever reasons, have not much to hope for in their current existence. Ironically, what should be the most inspiring word image of the Christian life feels soft, dull, and unwelcome to me. I fully admit that this may be my own problem in seeing how the word has been used and abused over time. And it is certainly a problem of language and interpretation, but that doesn't make it any less challenging to deal with, at least for me. But in my smugness about a word that I don't like, I'm confronted by the English translation of the Lord's Prayer. And what is a key phrase in the series of requests? That God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Through the Lord's Prayer, we are asking that God's kingdom be fully realized on earth as that kingdom now exists in that other place that is beyond the scope of our senses. In other words, there's a divine pattern that exists in a realm beyond our understanding, a realm of justice, wholeness, and truth. You can call the realm whatever you want to call it, but it's there. That's our hope. Through the Lord's Prayer, we are commanded to ask God to bring about, by whatever means necessary, a reformation of our tangible, familiar, physical realm to resemble an ideal realm that's beyond our physical senses. The final result, our ultimate hope, is for the divine pattern in all of its many forms to be realized in our physical world. One of my favorite books is a short C.S. Lewis book called The Great Divorce. The story describes a fanciful bus ride in which the passengers embark on a journey from earth to heaven. Aside from the colorful and amusing dialogue and narrative, there is a subtext in the story about the kind of place that heaven is. After many years of not having read the book, the image that sticks in my mind from how the story unfolds is how it illustrates the upside-down nature of spiritual reality compared with physical reality. Our language and materialistic culture tend to interpret the spirit world as perhaps a notch or two above a dreamlike fantasy, an otherworldly place that is fragile and reachable only by the greatest effort and only by select individuals with a lot of time and a lot of determination. By contrast, in Lewis's book, the human passages from the hard scrabble and familiar hard physical world become more and more like shadows and ghosts as they experience life in the spiritual realm. They become more like what they had always interpreted the spirit world to be, wispy, shadowy, and unreal. They come to realize, many of them to their horror, that they themselves are really the shadows and ghosts. All around them is truth, beauty, and justice in their pure, hard, and real forms. The humans find that the light is so strong that it hurts their eyes, and they have a hard time walking on the grass because the grass punctures their feet. It's too real. As fallen humans, unable to discern the reality of the spirit world for what it is, the passengers on the bus either become more and more ghost-like, or they set out to unlearn their assumptions about what is truly real in a cosmic sense. Now, I realize I'm bringing up a mother load of possible discussion points, and I don't intend to deal with, in any real way, with the questions of the dance between our world 
and the world beyond our understanding. However, I bring it up because it provides a backdrop for one of the morning texts. And it brings us into a place where we can discuss prayer as a very real connection between the physical and the spiritual worlds that we all inhabit. Most people recognize the book of James as a practical handbook of Christian life. What the letter lacks in theological depth, it makes up for in practical advice as to how to live as believers in community. It is the source of several memorable phrases that we're all familiar with, such as, faith without works is a dead faith. From the text, there is evidence that the original readers were dealing with issues that would be familiar to us as well. Discrimination among themselves, persecution of the poor by the rich, and complacency in aligning one's behavior with one's claim to salvation by faith. The author sets out to address those problems point by point in a methodical way. The book ends with the passage that we read this morning. One gets a sense the text for this morning is a culmination of the rest of the points the author is making. It's a final, critical reminder of what is most important in their day-to-day lives, and that is the activity of prayer. The sense of the passage is that prayer is the response to any circumstance. There is some rhetorical flourish to it. It's almost like a catechism or even a football cheer. What should you do when you are cheerful? You should pray. What should you do when you are sick? You should pray. What should you do when people speak ill of you? You should pray. What should you do when you're suffering? You should pray. The author seems to be ending his letter with a reminder that prayer is the foundation point for all of our activities. He ends the subsection with an illustration from the Old Testament. Elijah was no different than we are, yet he prayed hard, and his prayer was answered in a dramatic way. If this were the only passage in the New Testament that emphasized prayer as a first and most important response to a wide variety of experiences, we could perhaps overlook it in favor of a more this-worldly response to our life events. But any reading of the New Testament reveals a strong theme of prayer as more than simply an activity, but a constant state of being. Getting back to my illustration about words and the meaning that they convey, I'll admit to having a fairly dim view of the word prayer as well. Prayer, especially petitionary prayer, has the sense in my mind of an activity of last resort after all other options to solve a problem have been exhausted. Or I see it as a daily activity for those who are more disciplined in their prayer life than what I am. There are also the familiar philosophical problems that jump out and that we're all familiar with. To name a few, How do I know what to pray for? Why pray with specific requests to an all-knowing God? How do I know if my prayer is getting through? And how do I deal with the disappointment of seeing a prayer that does not seem to be answered? And at the very end, we might ask, what is the point of this whole exercise anyway? My personal biggest challenge to prayer is my sense of wonderment and near disbelief that the God of the universe has any particular interest in the challenges of my time and place, however dramatic and important those events and challenges may seem to me. But I come back to the theme of this world and the other world and the importance of bridging the gap between the two. While we may debate about whether the more dramatic manifestations of the spirit world, the healings, the exorcisms, 
the miracles have a role in our time and place. Few of us would deny that prayer is a critical component of our lives in community and as individuals. Despite the philosophical problems and the roadblocks, we are called to be a praying people. That is a difficult task. And unless you are a lot different from me, it is a lot easier said than done. In many respects, prayer seems alien to us. We live, work, and act as problem-solving people. And we have many resources at our disposal to help us solve our problems. To take time away from strategic action and engage in an activity that somehow bridges a mysterious gap between this world and the next one feels sometimes like a waste of time and energy. We are people who like to see results of our actions. And the act of prayer moves us into a realm of risk, mystery, and discomfort. We are asked to trust the ancient stories that God is there and that God cares about us in our particular time and place. When we engage in prayer, there are no guaranteed outcomes or even an acknowledgement that our prayer has been heard. We seek answers to problems. We petition God to help us in our efforts. In our better moments, we thank God for the joy of what we have. We may start our days with prayer, but do we really think that our petitions will be met in a meaningful way? Prayer may feel alien to us, both as an activity and as a form of living. Somehow the interface between the physical world and the spiritual world is a very hard one to bridge. In Celtic theology, of which I'm not an expert, there is a concept that I find very intriguing. It is the idea of thin places. Thin places, as I understand them from my very limited reading, are actual physical places where the connection between the spiritual world and the physical world is said to be stronger than at other places. I find the idea intriguing, not so much that I'm tempted to visit these thin places and see if the stories are true, to see if I sense that there's more spiritual activity there than, than elsewhere. I suppose I'm drawn to the idea that there are places and times when, in a real sense, God is nearer to us than we are when we are elsewhere. When I was going through a difficult experience a couple of years ago, I sought relief and healing in whatever ways I could find. I had a moment of revelation at one point when I found myself in the city for some reason unrelated to church activity. I felt a strong sense of being drawn to be at this building for reasons I didn't entirely understand. I followed the draw and ended up here. Somehow being here in this place, in the dark, at night, alone, smelling the familiar odors of the church building and the bustle, and hearing the bustle of the city activity outside brought healing to me in a way that I never would have expected. This was my thin place. The sensory experiences reminded me of my community, of the people who care about me and my family, and the reasons that I make an effort to be here every week. I can only speak from my experience at that time, but I'm convinced in a very real way that I can't put into words that God was with me in a very tangible way that evening and that I was standing in the bridge between this world and the world beyond our senses. To push the analogy a step further, I would contend that not only are there thin places where the interaction between the physical and the spiritual world is more active, I would say that there are thin times when the circumstances of our lives as individuals and as a community push us closer to the bridge between the physical and the spirit world. 
Again, I'm only speaking from my experience, but I'll offer it as a testimony. Many of you have heard this story, so I won't go into detail. The short version is that in January of 1995, my life was fully upended when in the space of a few minutes I watched my wife die of an unexpected cardiac arrest. I've had, asked, I've had people ask me over the years how long it took for me to get back to normal. My usual answer is that, well, I'm really not back to normal, but I'm looking forward to getting there. And I'm not trying to be glib about that. It's just that you never recover from an experience like that. It's a wound that stays with me and always will. My point in offering the story is to illustrate the paradox of prayer. It may st seem like a stale evangelical slogan, but I'm convinced that it is true. When we feel the least as though we have any control over our lives, the power of God makes its presence known in unmistakable ways. Perhaps it is why persecuted churches seem to be the most vibrant. They have nothing else to count on. In their weakness and terror, the blinding white and sometimes frightening beacon of the world beyond their senses, the world of heaven, comes to them. In dramatic ways, the light empowers their community to keep the faith in spite of their hardships. They celebrate the joy of God's kingdom revealed to them, despite the fact that their physical world is very literally falling apart. In the midst of my death experience, I was standing firmly for a long time on that bridge between this world and the next. There is nothing like having your life turned upside down and having all your pretensions about yourself stripped away to remind you that life really is full of illusions. I can offer my testimony through that experience that I am convinced beyond the wisp of a doubt of a few fundamental truths. One, God is real. Two, God does answer prayers. Three, God does work through the community to bring healing to those who hurt. Can I offer any proof of any of that to someone who is scientifically minded and would challenge me? No, I cannot. Does that change my firm conviction that I am right in my beliefs? No, it does not. Beyond that, there's not much that I can say. As a closing thought, I'd like to offer another of my word pictures. Anyone who's been in my Sunday school classes knows that I like word pictures. As I pondered prayer and its many challenges, I came up with a mental image that I found very helpful. I'm certain I'm not the only one who's come up with this analogy, but somehow it has taken on new meaning as I thought about it some more. I invite you to think of prayer as a dance. Prayer is a dance between this world and God's kingdom. Somehow that image of a dance overcomes much of the misgivings that I have when I think about the word prayer. And I'd invite you to think about that during this week. How is prayer a dance? And I'll throw out a few, a few suggestions. A dance is invigorating and it's active. It is hard work. Anyone who has danced the night away the day before feels it in his or her muscles the following day. A dance is all-consuming during the time when the music is playing. It is only you and your partner in a swirl of movement. If it is a partner you know, you have an uncanny sense of which direction that partner will go next, and you follow his or her lead. A dance is risky. We don't know the outcomes of the dance, and we don't know if we're up to the challenges that the dance will require. 
For some of the songs, we may need to step out because we don't have the same skills that other dancers do. A dance is relational. Even though the skills of movement are individual, a dance is a community event. There is a sense of common, rigorous activity among people who know each other and care about each other very deeply. A dance is mysterious and unpredictable. One is never sure what the band is going to play. Will it be a slow tune or a fast one? Do I have the skills to keep up with the changes in the tempo? A dance involves skill. It is an individual skill, but it is learned by doing it in community. Like any other relational skill, we learn from each other's mistakes and help each other out when we can no longer keep up. A dance has an uncertain outcome. How will we feel when this particular dance session is complete? Will we feel that we have changed? Perhaps we will feel embarrassed because we don't know the steps and we'll look foolish to the better dancers that are around us. A dance is almost always a celebration. There's community energy and enthusiasm that is generated as we learn to dance with each other under the protection of God's grace. If we push the analogy a step further and claim that God is our partner in the dance, we learn about God by interacting with God in an active, positive, energetic, and continuous way. Through the energy that we expend in the effort of learning the dance steps and the way our partner dances, we learn more about God's plans for our lives, our community, and our future. In turn, our dances become more meaningful and helpful in bringing about God's kingdom among us. Finally, a dance is joyful. It is joyfulness expressed in movement, whether it is fast or slow, dramatic or quiet. And by joy, I do not mean happiness or feeling on top of the world. No, I'm referring to the sense of fulfillment that you get with an assurance that all of your efforts really do mean something, that you're part of an unfolding drama, and that you're part of a community that is an earthly expression of a world beyond our sight and understanding. Amen.